My favorite book of all time is Outliers by uh, Malcolm mm. Gladwell. And there's that chapter about, you know, uh, when they were looking for the perfect nuclear scientist to make the, the atomic bomb. And they ended up going with the guy that had more people skills, maybe not quite as sharp, you know. And for me, and I know people disagree with me on this. I've had discussions about this with colleagues. I believe that is the single most important uh, element that you must possess. I am so convinced of it. You might get one invitation and celebrate that, but you'll never get invited back. And that's the key. <laughs> the key is getting re-invited. And so um, just to have that EQ, emotional quotient, that that ability to discern what somebody's really trying to say just through the you know, what do they say? Like over 80% of our communication is non-verbal. It's all about the tilt of your head and like your eyebrow and, you know, just all this stuff, tone of voice. And so that's, to me, absolutely critical in any field. Welcome everybody to the Faking Notes, Notes. Podcast. 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 We're back. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you, Trevor? How are <laughs> what, you, Daniel? What an episode. Good. You're good? Yeah. <laughs> I'm good because we just had like one of the most incredible. I know we've been saying this recently. This episode is incredible that it's like one of our best yet. And once again, I feel like I got to say this is like one of our best episodes yet. We just featured an incredible human being. Uh, as a part of our mainly Mozart mini series here on the Faking Notes podcast, David Kim, ladies and gentlemen, who's a violinist who's currently the concert master of the Philadelphia Orchestra, has been for uh, 24 years. Um, he is a fellow jail yard alum, so you know he's one of us. Uh, and he's <laughs> currently on faculty at the Robert McDuffie Center for Strings, which is where I went and got my undergraduate degree. He's an incredible musician. Just Google him. We're not going to read through the extensive bio, and he wouldn't want us to either mm -hmm. because he's focused on bigger and better things. We get to dig into the mental game and not just how to be a great performer and how to stay in the zone and enter the flow state and things we learn from sports like he's focused on, but really tackling the pressures of this career and the pressures that are put onto us. He's one of our famous child prodigies uh, who was like gone through and was set up for this career. And then things shaped up differently. But look how his life has turned out. We're, we're all better for it. But that, that mental drain, what goes into that process, going out and winning awards at the Tchaikovsky competition, and then having to kind of refine yourself, reinvent yourself, and then become the concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra. We talk about uh, his interest in hunting, uh, fishing, golf, all of these outdoorsman skills and being in touch with nature and how to deal with not being the best at everything and how it's okay. Uh, there's so many little nuggets in here. We don't want to spoil them all. This, this is a must listen. It's great to see someone who's achieved such success, but is still growing, still becoming self-aware, still working on himself and trying to be a great father trying to be a great mentor 
you're going to see exactly why. So as we jump into this conversation, uh, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Spotify. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get it. Download. Uh, download it. So, you know, the metrics, we get these, the number goes up. And Find leave us a review. Up. We love reading the reviews. We read them in the intros. But we've already read all of them. So leave us something new. So even even if it's a scathing critique with five stars, by the way, we would love to read that and put that on blast. <laughs> if you want to talk to us in between the episodes, we got a Discord. We got over a hundred people in there right now. We're hanging out. We're actually having our own kind of studio classes, our own little recitals. We're performing for each other, giving feedback, talking about career, talking about life, talking about video games, movies, whatever else is going on. It's it's so fun for us to finally interact with the listeners. And please join us there. Come hang out, have a good time. Uh, if you got a little extra moolah, which we talk about at the end of this episode, join the Patreon. We love our conversations with you, and we also love your money. So hit us up on Patreon. Please do. <laughs> and last but not least, we're on all the socials. We're everywhere now. We're ubiquitous. We're on YouTube. We're now on TikTok. We're on Instagram. Just follow us there, and you'll get to see clips if you're not able to listen to the full episode. Come and enjoy us in little bitty segments. Um, but without further ado, let's welcome our next guest, the David, David Kim. Kim. First off, welcome to the Faking Notes podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thanks a lot, Trevor. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you today. Can I can I cut in here really quickly? Um, David, um, I'm so excited to speak with you because we actually have a, a little bit of a connection. Um, I haven't been to Macon in like five years, but I'm delighted, like when in researching, I'm delighted to learn that you're like, a faculty member at my alma mater. I went to the Robert McCormick oh. Center for Strings. So, Amazing. Uh, it's it's wild. It's wild. Like the entrepreneurial uh, tenants that were taught there uh, have really applied and changed the trajectory of my career. I'm so thankful. But I'm, I'm curious. You're one of the busiest violinists on, violinists on planet Earth. Like what drew you to the Robert, Robert McDuffie Center for Strings? Well, first of all, is it's the um, relationship because um, I've known Robert McDuffie because we studied with the same violin teacher, Dorothy DeLay at Juilliard. And um, I've known him almost my entire life. I first met him probably when I was eight or nine years old Whoa. in Aspen. And uh, I always looked up to him. And then uh, for the last you know time I've been in the Philadelphia Orchestra, about you know, 23, 24 years, I've had many kind of small, short, like one, two-year adjunct visiting professor, distinguished things uh, at places like University of Texas in Austin and uh, just, you know, kind of lots of master classes and stuff. And U UT Austin ended and uh, somehow the timing just worked out. Mr. McDuffie called me and he said, well, you know, we, we need a kind of a concert master presence in our faculty. Would you consider it? And I thought, sure, it'll be another one of those one or two a year stints and then it'll be done. And now it's going, we just finished my fifth year there and 
I'm actually looking into the future like, wow, I could end up staying here for the rest of my career. I love it that much. Wow. I've, uh, I grew up in the South. I'm from South Carolina. So it just has this wonderful Southern, old Southern feel. Um, playing wise, it's like high powered conservatory level, but the vibe is very, very kind of collegial, warm, caring, and uh, not too big. It's not like five symphony orchestras all in one school. So I just, all the, everything, it checks all the boxes and I just love it a lot. And so, and my fellow uh, colleagues there, faculty. That's a, I, what a small world. It's, it's so small. And, and at, from the student perspective, it was wild being able to connect with people of your caliber as a student and to be able to see how you operate, uh, how you, how you operate with other professionals, how you prepare. Like I used to hear Amy Schwartz Moretti practicing for like playing with Elizabeth Pridgen and, uh, yeah. Julie Albers, like for their, for their trio, uh, for their trio work. And just seeing that, you know, this is truly an art that you have to practice no matter how much you've been uh, at it. And also on top of that, the entrepreneurial aspect of like having multiple different aspects of your profession, which was. You're the perfect example right here. You know, this is so cool. What is your instrument, Drew? I play viola. I see. Wonderful. And so I, I built a brand online called uh, That Viola Kid, where I like. That's you? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So I, I, I do that sort of stuff, but like I'm really interested in making my own art. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But this is great. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation and connect this way. I'm curious because you've lived all over, like born in Illinois, you've grew up in South Carolina. I'm from North Carolina. Drew's from Georgia. We got a lot of uh, Southern boys on the, on the podcast today. But then you've traveled the world, moved to New York, like very early on for school, the Soviet Union, all over the place. What's home for you when you're doing all of these this traveling just uh, across your whole career and whole life? Like, how do you how do you find home? Is it a location? Is it music? Is it family? What is home? Well, obviously, family is a big thing for me. I have two daughters in college, and they were both born here in Philadelphia. And we've been here, what, 23, 24 years now. So I say I'm a Philadelphian, and my girls definitely are. My wife is definitely feels like she's a Philadelphian. But there's a small part of me, like when I'm like on whatever, social media and stuff, and when I meet people from the South, I always say that I am first and foremost a South Carolinian. Um, I really love the state of South Carolina. It might be possibly that my mother, I'm an only child and she passed when I was very young. She was, I was 14. She was 39. She was a professor of piano performance at University of South Carolina and she passed of cancer while I, when I was 14. So she's buried downtown Columbia. And so obviously that connection never goes away. And so, um, yeah, it's all about family and, and, and relationships. I'm actually going to be going down to Hilton Head for the first time in seven years. So I'll be coming into the great state of South Carolina. Oh, <laughs> uh, the low country. It's awesome. It's beautiful. I was going to say the there. first time, bro. I was like, are you kidding me? No. Nah, for some reason, North Carolinians love going to the South Carolina beaches. That's what we do. <laughs> we don't go to our own. Like and oh, people from Ohio. Yeah, come to ours. People from Ohio come to ours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> from Georgia, too. 
Like, like what? We don't, we don't go to St. Simon's or Jekyll Island. <laughs> we're, we're not about that life. <laughs> like those, they're ugly. They're gross. They have a bunch of trees like washed up on them. It's not cool. So one of the things we did in preparation for this conversation is we all watched this beautiful little short documentary. Uh, it's called From Child Violin Prodigy to Concert Master. I think I saw it on like the Korean Society's uh, YouTube channel. And, and one of the things I found really compelling is that the opening scene isn't like a list of accomplishments or about the violin. It's your family in the kitchen making a meal. And so just like this podcast, opening up, centering in on family is such a it's such a beautiful thing it's a beautiful like bedrock how does family fit into your life because growing up so focused it's it's violent it's violent you know becoming great violinists just drive towards music and then we get older and suddenly it's like this whole other family thing enters the equation is it hard to balance it how has it helped your music how has it helped your non-musical life like, what is family and how is that part of your like core? Well, I have to say, Trevor, that it's a little bit of a struggle that never ends for me because the way I'm wired, I am so about success, succeeding, career, fame, all that stuff. And um, I know finally, like now that I'm like towards the end of my career, I'm maybe, if God willing, maybe five to 10 more years as concertmaster. I'm not sure. But as I look back, I'm like, wow, bro, you didn't have to do that so hard. And then like be away all that time to, you know, just take every single gig that you possibly could. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I'm so grateful that at least now I understand the value of family and, 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 being present. And um, yeah, I, I just uh, feel like family is everything. And without good family, then, you know, the music making just kind of, it just has a certain kind of odor to it. You know, you just can't really feel comfortable. And I'm sure it's like being a great athlete. I'm a huge sports fan, but, you know, like you look in the mind of a pro golfer, or a, you know, a great wide receiver running back you know just like they just need to feel good inside most of the time or inspired or moved by something you know what those moments are when i start them in my fantasy lineup like yeah. oh yeah <laughs> uh, he just Come got on. a divorce i'm putting yeah yeah right it's it's money ball just like, yeah oh, yeah exactly yeah. so yeah, just i got thinking about all that stuff I got a bone pig with the Eagles, man. And so after the uh, <laughs> the Patriots trounced the Falcons in 2016, we had a chance for redemption in the Eagles. Y'all just y'all didn't let it happen. It's okay. I I take no responsibility for anything Eagles related, <laughs> unless <laughs> unless I'm starting somebody in my fantasy Twitter. Yeah, okay, 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 okay. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> Speaking of great golfers, your wife. You met her on the golf course. She was on a very similar path, like similar yeah. kind of lifestyle parents, destiny, and her destiny was golf and working towards this. And you've both talked about uh, and mentioned in past interviews uh, the pros and cons of growing up that way. 
how was it like for both of you to have grown up in that environment where you're aiming towards uh, per- perfection or or greatness? You're on a track. You both marry. <laughs> what do you do? What is the second generation of the prodigy parent? Where is it more forgiving? Is it more understanding? Do you know how to shape their focus better? Do you let them wander? Like, what do you do as a parent, having gone through that both yourselves? Yeah, I mean, we definitely led similar lives as young, as children, and then adolescent and preteens, teens. You know, all those years were just wrought with unhappiness and difficulty. All I can say is that, um, you know, all kind of emotional baggage and all the stuff that happens to all of us who are pushed that hard, there is always collateral damage, always. Mm. And it shows up in different ways at different points in our lives. It shows up in our marriages. It shows up in our parenting. And then we're like, you know what? I'm going to give this to you girls. And then they take it and they pass it on and they have (laughs) the same hangups. And it's like, it just, you can't help it. I think that kind of, and that's why I'm so, I'm so fascinated when I read a book about, you know, Tiger Woods or Mm. Serena Williams, or, Mm -hmm. you know, just, I read books about all these incredible athletes or fellow musicians and they all have their own story, but usually there is some, you know, there's some pain in there and there's some hurt. And so we tried so hard not to push our girls. They're 20 and 21 right now. And we tried so hard not to push them, but they pushed themselves. And at one point we were talking a few years ago and we were kind of kind of joking, but we were like, girls, you are welcome to get B's and C's and, you know, just kind of like coast a little bit. You do not have to be like top of your class. (laughs) And they kind of looked at us. They were like, are you kidding in this family? You know, it's like impossible, you know, not to feel that pressure. And so they were saying it in not a happy like, oh, but we want to try hard. It was not that kind of place they were coming from. They were kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like you can't help it. You just feel like I got to live up to a certain standard and, you know, just my wife, not only in golf, but in in academia and, and studies and stuff. And then, you know, just all that stuff. You just can't help it. So I think self-awareness is the key. And you have to have wise people around you speaking truth into your life in love. And then as long as you're aware of it, at least you can fight it and you can resist the temptation to just absolutely go with what feels natural, which sometimes is so unhealthy. That's so fascinating how you created the space for your children to fail. Um, I think Steve Jobs said like, you should, I, I'm butchering it and paraphrasing, but he said like, like if you're not failing, you're not really moving anywhere. You're not really doing anything, right? And so creating that space for them to do that, but also exemplifying excellence, I think maybe that's the sweet science, you know, lead by example, but then just like cr- present the space for them to to don't don't make the walls too close in on them let them be able to expand maybe um would you say that that's like kind of a framework that you you can get behind 
Absolutely. Uh, and I would like to think that we kind of use that model with our girls and they are doing well, but you know, thousands of kids do well all the time, but they do well and they do love music. Um, and uh, I think our relationships are very healthy and uh, you know, it's all this whole fame thing. They take it with a grain of salt and they're very kind of nonchalant, a little matter of fact about it. And like if they're at school and they meet somebody who played violin their whole life and yet they're like a bioscience major, they're like, mm -hmm. what? That's your dad? <laughs> You're kidding. I've been a fan of it. But they're like, you know, they're, they're really that? healthy about it. They're not like, you know, kind of that kind of air in Korean yeah. society. They've got putting some strength in your neck when you're like, yeah, yeah. Like, no, they never they do come that. come from good stock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of um, Korean Americans, we have uh, producer Daniel here. Uh, who had a really profound question he wanted to uh, to ask you, and then I wanted to give him the space to, to do so here. Daniel? Okay. Wow, I'm getting nervous. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever asked a question. So. Got to have something to do with Korean food. I'm going to yeah, yeah. get <laughs> uh, Definitely something about being Korean, but uh, not food. But mm -hmm. um, first off, I just want to say that as a fellow second-generation Korean-American, you know, seeing you as a concert master of, you know, one of the major symphony orchestras in the world, I've respected you from afar for many years. And honestly, like things like this make me so proud to be a Korean American. One thing that I really kind of resonated with when doing research on you was that my mom, just like your mom, wanted me to be a soloist. I'm a cellist. And you know, that's the that's the Korean mom's dream for every son or daughter is to be a soloist. But the only difference is that you actually want something and I did it, you know, but that's what that being prize winner at the Tchaikovsky competition. But anyways, so that was my goal for a long time. And um, I worked towards that goal, but it didn't pan out. And for a really, really long time, I actually hated myself for it. You know, there was like this, I think, I think you can kind of understand where I'm coming from, but it was uh, mostly due to this guilt that I had, that I wasn't um, able to kind of fulfill what my parents wanted for me, which is a huge thing in, in Korean uh, culture and society. But what um, advice or suggestions, you know, would you give to someone who's kind of going through this and this idea of, you know, setting goals and expectations for him or herself and not being disappointed or let down if these expectations aren't met? Because let's be honest with each other. I mean, there's so many musicians right now who are deserving to be concertmaster of Philly or first prize at Chipe, but the unfortunate reality is that there's only one concertmaster for every orchestra and there's one winner every year, sometimes four years. And there's too many people who live in this world right now. So what would you say to someone who um, thinks that in order for you to make it in classical music, you know, you have to win that job or you have to win that competition? What would you say to that person? I would say now more than ever in our generation now, in this time, in this era, I think 
I mean, look at you guys. You're the perfect example. You have to be open to anything, to creating new uh, frontiers for musicians. Not everybody can and should be a, a, a performing artist, whether it's orchestral chamber music or even a teacher. Or it doesn't doesn't matter. It, they, it used to be so narrow. Either you were in chamber music or a teacher or symphonic, and then like one point zero 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 one percent soloist. And now it's so different. There's so much out there and constantly. And, and the, one of the nice silver linings of the pandemic was people became so creative and able to do many different things and create different things. So um, that's one thing is just to be not completely focused on being, you know, the next Midori or Sarah Chang or whatever. The other thing is, and this is the hard one, is to be able to communicate with those parents early and keep that dialogue going and kind of almost educating them along the way. Like, you know, mom, I'm not going to be going to Harvard and I'm not going to be a doctor and I'm not going to, you know, like you kind of to, to start that, whatever, starting joking or whatever, but starting that dialogue so that when those inevitable twists and turns and failures and, you know, dips and, all that happens, they're a little bit more informed and a little bit more gracious and a little more realistic as opposed to kind of like having this single-minded kind of focus that is so unrealistic most of the time. Wow. And uh, But that's hard, especially between second generation and first generation. There's a language barrier sometimes. It's, yeah. you know, just, it's really, it's tough. Yeah. You know, you couldn't have said it better. I mean, you know, as a, you know, Korean American, you're, you're conflicted between these two cultures. And so at times, you know, people like us, we have like identity issues. It's like, do I see myself, you know, like in certain situations, do I gravitate more towards the Korean side mm -hmm. or do I gravitate more towards the American side? You know what I'm That's saying? Absolutely. Like, right. Yeah. You know, and, uh, it's hard, but I also, you know, just want to say that, um, that was the correct answer. Great job. Anyways. From a young Korean guy, man, that is like a yeah. great compliment. Yeah. <laughs> wow. My daughters would be rolling their eyes right now. Uh, I, that's, that's what they're there for. That's what they're yeah, there for. Exactly. That's their job. But, <laughs> So, like, in this vein of, like, understanding that there are new frontiers um, and that the future is going to look different than it do than the past does, like, understanding your place in as like a bridge, much like Beethoven was a bridge from classical to the romantic era. You're you're also a, a bridge, David, in like this transition from what it means to be a professional musician being in this position like what do you think is the most it's like the singular most important skill for a musician of the 21st century to develop well i'm going to drew i'm going to say first let's just make it a given that you have to be an excellent player so really technique is where it begins like i don't care how musical you are and how profound you are if you don't have like a sparkling technique it shows up and it shows up, it rears its ugly head under pressure, of course. So we're just going to make that a given. 
my favorite book of all time is Outliers by uh, Malcolm mm. Gladwell. And there's that chapter about, you know, uh, when they were looking for the perfect nuclear scientist to make the, the atomic bomb. And they ended up going with the guy that had more people skills, maybe not quite as sharp, you know. And for me, and I know people disagree with me on this. I've had discussions about this with colleagues. But I believe that is the single most important uh, element that you must possess. I am so convinced of it. You might get one invitation and celebrate that, but you'll never get invited back. And that's the key. <laughs> the key is getting re-invited. And so um, just to have that EQ, emotional quotient, that that ability to discern what somebody's really trying to say just through the, you know, what do they say? Like over 80% of our communication is nonverbal. It's all about the tilt of your head and like your eyebrow and, you know, just all this stuff, tone of voice. And so that's, to me, absolutely critical in any field, music, anything in art, uh, science, you know, any, any field, car mechanics, doesn't matter. Wow. It's perfect because that's you, you've just basically summed up so many of the things we've been trying to talk about on the Fakey Notes podcast. <laughs> it's not the uh, We Know All the Notes podcast. It's the Fakey Notes podcast. It's, you know, <laughs> imposter syndrome. Yes. It's overcoming things. It's being comfortable uh, in that space. And I think this is something that get lost because we could we could very easily spend the next uh, 10 hours talking about practice methods and, you know, refining technique and perfection, but we're particularly interested in all these extra musical things and emotional intelligence, communication, uh, entire episodes about these things, because like you said, that's something that is both in music and beyond. One of the things that recently came up, I was, uh, teaching school for strings in hell's kitchen just, uh, last week I used to teach there. friend was out. I was like, yeah, I miss it. I love teaching these kids. They're in high school, you know, they're growing up, they're about to enter the world and college and all these things. And I was supposed to be covering theory, going through theory and composition, um, my normal shtick. And they all seemed kind of nervous. Each little class felt a little nervous. And I was like, what's going on? Uh, how are you guys feeling? Like, what, what's, what's going on today? And they're like, oh, we have playthroughs. We have the studio class. And Every class that kept coming in every 30 minutes was another group of nervous uh, students. And I'd ask them, so what goes on in your head when you're performing? And I was like, have you ever been asked this question before? And they're like, no, because we spend so much time on the practice, the technique. They hadn't thought about what's going through your, their head in the moment. And some of them are, I stare at a spot in the ground or I see my mom recording with the iPad or the floor creaks or I'm worried about the blank the blanking out my shaky hands. And so we spent a lot of time talking about these performance psychology things because of course, being able to perform under pressure isn't just exclusive to music. That's a valuable skill that's going to be everywhere. We will always be under high pressure situations and how we handle that is a big part of how we'll have success. As someone who's been in lots of high pressure situations, how do you stay in this flow? How do you keep your mind centered, whether it's a musical high pressure situation or just a regular one that comes across in daily life? Well, um, 
First of all, let me say, Trevor, that I really applaud you for the way you approached those kids at School for Strings. I mean, just to let them kind of blurt out what they were feeling must have been so cathartic for them. And then I'm sure the discussion was actually pretty lively, and I'm sure that it was beneficial for them for playthroughs later in that day. I mean, it's just wonderful that you weren't like, okay, let's get right back to the L&M. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, that's really wonderful. Um, so in terms of pressure, um, for me, it's a battle in my own brain many times. I'm trying not to like imagine something going wrong or a shaky bow or something or memory slip. Um, so one is just over practicing to the point of like, Oh, I hate the Mendelssohn violin concerto because I'm so sick of playing it over and over again. <laughs> My usual, like I have to run through a beginning to end twice every day and then do slowly once, which takes me four hours. I hate that. But, <laughs> Come next weekend when I'm playing it with my school orchestra and I'm really feeling the pressure, it's going to pay off rather than that little. And so I, I try to do that. I try to really feel like I'm over prepared. That's one thing. Another thing that I think in my head is I sometimes am very guilty of thinking that my colleagues in the Philadelphia Orchestra are hoping that I'm going to screw it up. Isn't that sick? It's just it's horrible. Like not consciously like, oh, Bob over there thinks I'm going to screw up and he loves it. <laughs> not like that, but just this kind of like insecure Bob. feeling, insecure feeling. So it just hit me like last year. I was like, wait a minute. When my friend, the principal flute has this big solo, I am just like, come on, Jeff, you are the best flutist in the world. Do what you're put on this earth to do. I, I'm so like rooting for him. I'm in his camp and I, it goes with everybody, like in the entire orchestra. I feel bad about them when they have solos or, and I thought, wait a minute, they feel the same way about me. And so that, <laughs> hopefully, or at least I like to think so. Except, so that's, Except. That's, a, that's another thing. You know, I really try to remember, even while I'm playing, come on, they want you to, you know, you're representing the orchestra. They don't want you to fall on your face. And then the last thing is, for people like us who've played our whole lives, had the best training money can buy and all this stuff, it's kind of like any athletic move or game that you're playing. Like if, or something as simple as walking, if you're like looking at your feet and you're not looking ahead or, and you're, too caught up in every little piece of technique like okay i'm gonna pivot this arm back while i pivot this arm forward and then i'm gonna keep my head pretty quiet you know like you don't think mm -hmm. that when you just walk and i try to do that with the violin playing i find that i play my best on stage under super pressure like carnegie hall um scheherazade at carnegie hall for me that, that's as pressure filled as it gets and uh i just try not to think about okay keep your bow straight and make sure to pronate and like no i just sometimes just like say okay you have played the violin your whole life go do what you're supposed to do and that's Let's go it. do the thing it's almost like i go out of my body and i'm like up here looking down i'm like okay go for it just do it it's the flow state. incredible yeah.
can I hop in and, and just say like as a violist? Yeah, Drew. I just I don't know what that feels like with people rooting for you. I just feel like, you know, when the viola solo comes up, the concert match is like, okay, bro, okay. It's, it's Bob. Bob's are you gonna play in you. tune? Yeah. <laughs> is your are you, are you, is your bow shaking? I just wanted to I wanted to share. Uh... <laughs> um. So that I really am so thankful that you gave such a thorough clear description of your mental process when it comes to dealing with uh, stage fright, because we recently had an episode on, on the Fake Nose podcast about stage fright and conquering it and, and, and deconstructing it. And the way you framed it as like a mental battle is just, it's the mental. And when you, when you prepare the body, it's like you're, you're, you're loading your weapons, you're polishing your sword and, and you're getting ready to, to, to battle the demons that are going to pop up uh, when you inevitably have something go awry on stage. And so uh, if, you, if your weapons are polished and they're ready, you can, you can defeat that enemy. Thank you. Cause like, it, it, it's not something that's talked about in school. It really isn't not, it's just like, go ahead, just practice more. So you don't forget the notes next time. <laughs> Well, I mean, Drew, I have to say, though, that um, that's what works for me. What I, what I keep telling my students is I'm giving you definitely some jumping off points, but really in the end, through trial and error, you have to figure out what works for you. And if that means like, oh, I have to eat three Chipotle burritos before I go on stage. You know, I don't know what I'm just any, yeah, that's no my excuse. excuse. Anything. That's my excuse. I mean, hey, <laughs> no, no, I'm going on stage. Hey, I have to, I have to do this. It's my process. You know, just through trial and error, through lots of little performances, run throughs in front of people, whether it's in your dorm room in front of your next door neighbor, or if it's in front of a playing at your church on a Sunday, whatever, just to, finally do enough of it to start discovering, wait a minute, I should not, like this is something I discovered, I, on a day of a big concert, I will not eat a meal with another musician. The reason is, I, I was playing with the National Orchestra in Costa Rica once, and there was this super intense Panamanian principal cellist there. And... <laughs> He was like, David, uh, I was wondering if you could have uh, lunch with me today after the morning dress rehearsal. I was like, yeah, sure. So we went. And then he says, over lunch, he doesn't eat a bite. He's just looking at me. And he was like, listen, this is the way you should be thinking. Before you play the phrase, you're going to imagine your body going to this place and playing it before you get there. And then you play it. And then it bounces back to you. And you go back and forth, back and forth. So that night, I get on stage, I'm tuning my violin, I look over, and he's got his cello there, and he looks over at me like, <laughs> like, let's do this. I played horribly. The conductor was like Erwin Hoffman, great conductor. He looked at me, he was like, afterwards, he was like, what happened to you? And I was like, I didn't want to tell him. Well, yeah. it was, you know, but... um I, I realized he totally got in my head and messed me up. And so uh, now so many times, especially when I'm traveling, like if I go to, you know, somewhere in Missouri or something and like, oh, somebody's like, you're in town. Let me take you out to lunch. How about 
Thursday. And I'm like, oh, that's the day of the concert. <laughs> a lot of a lot of times that happens. Or even somebody might say a patron might want to go out and take me out to lunch or something. And they start talking about like, oh, this young man was here last year and he was playing the same piece you're playing. And he had a huge memory slip. He recovered beautifully. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. It's just like I'm gonna drop this this nuke this timed nuke. Anyways, good luck. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And I'm not exaggerating. That kind of stuff happens. We all know exactly. So oh, okay. that's one of my rules, along with uh, you know eating a banana or whatever. You know, <laughs> running two miles. I just do not let anybody near me to get into my head. And another thing I do is I drive slowly and early to the hall. Like I try mm. to do everything like slowly, like talk slowly, walk slowly. And then I get to the dressing room really early. And then I play through the whole piece really super slow. And then when I walk on stage, I try to walk slow because I know myself. I speak fast. I think fast. I do everything fast. And when I'm nervous, it's even five times as fast. So even though I feel like I'm kind of in slow motion, I know it's just normal, but I'm just trying to slow that internal engine down right away because i just know it's going fast my my engine is calibrated too fast that's really fascinating and so how did you discover that about yourself like do you journal do you like go back and watch the game tape because that that takes a lot of like what you said earlier self-awareness that most people don't have no it's called jane kim that's my wife's <laughs> name like, there we go my wife is, you know, constantly like, you don't have to run between here and there. You can just walk. You don't have to say it a thousand miles an hour. You know, like just she's constantly kind of telling me stuff. And 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 also I teach a lot. So, you know, when I'm at uh, Mercer University, uh, you know, I'm constantly working with young people who are getting nervous and getting ready for whatever audition for a summer festival or grad school or maybe even to audition for a job with the Atlanta Symphony or something. And uh, I'm just trying to give them these tools that one or two of those things might stick with them. Speaking of things that stick with you, and Robert McDuffie Center for Strings, I think this is my best segue of all time. Uh, <laughs> I had a privilege of performing with uh, Nadja Salerno Sonnenberg in Rome during the summer of 2014, and it changed my life. She said something that stuck with me forever. Uh, she taught me that chamber music isn't about playing the right notes at the right time. It's about playing the notes with your colleagues. Even if they're wrong, if you're with them, they're right. So it changed, it changed my playing forever. I've never been the same musician, chamber musician, and it was just a week in Rome. I I'm curious, like, is there like a Nadja ism that stuck with you from your longtime friendship oh absolutely um my nickname for her when she was young and i was young was uh parmesan i called her parmesan and she would <laughs> and she would call me chop suey and, and um you know i was always copying her like i would go into my lesson with mr lay and mr lay would be, look at me if i'd finish playing like so not like me and she'd be like Ugh honey, are you trying to copy Nadja again? And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, she had incredible influence on me in so many ways. 
But um, one of the simple ones that she told me was um, th that I pass on to all my students was she, I, I, I was like, Notch, how do you do, like, how do you get the audience so foaming at the mouth and stoked up like every time, even like after the first movement, you get a gigantic standing ovation. What is it? What creates the excitement in your playing? Because I couldn't figure it out, like exactly one thing. And she looked at me, she was like, chop suey. It's all about bow speed. Like, <laughs> move the bow. You know, like, I don't oh, know, yeah. really, that's it? Oh, yeah. yeah, just move the bow. Move the bow, bow speed. And I pass that along quite a bit to um, mm. students. And another thing she told me that I, I'll never forget is that she always looks for one moment in each piece or movement just where she gets so quiet that the audience is like, is she playing? Like, absolutely intimate and almost nothing. And she finds that one moment to draw her audience in. And then, of course, everything goes from there out to the bow speed and all that stuff. But yeah, those are just two small examples of incredible influence she had on me. Thank you so I'm much. I'm so, Drew, I'm so happy to hear that. That is so cool. I mean, that, that really makes me really happy that she had that effect on you as well. Oh yeah, it, it was it was a it was a divergence, for real. Like I I haven't seen her since, but uh, I'm I'm looking forward to the day that we we connect again. And I can tell her. Myself. Oh, and she'll remember. She's amazing in that way. Keeping it in the sphere of education, uh, right before we press record, um, we were we were happy to have had you in L.A. for Tone Base, of which I am a now longtime employee. And the the thing I loved about being at Tone Base, uh. One, it's obvious I've been there longer than any other job, which is crazy. And like this music, you know, we're hopping around, we're the hustling. And I love it because of its unique approach to education, particularly to reach students who would not have access to that type of education. I'm thinking of the adult amateur, that biochemist who was able to play at night. Uh, a big part of what I've done is, is customer interviews. And I get to speak to a lot of these people who are pilots and they just want to fall asleep to our program. <laughs> They're not trying to necessarily <laughs> go onto the conservatories. And yet I'll speak to those too. You wind up That's with great. in this new sphere of education, all different types of people who simply want to enjoy and improve at music. And so I'm curious, you've been doing a lot more of these educational things. Thank you again for coming on Tonebase. Uh, not a sponsor, but they pay me. Uh, so in fact, they are, they are, it's, it's kind of like, they're, they're kind of like, uh, they're kind of like the longtime sponsor of the podcast. I couldn't do this without them. Uh, but are all these fun, unique educational things, like what excites you about the future of education and being able to reach people beyond the standard collegiate level or masterclass level people? What excites you about education? Well, I mean... I, I sound like truly an old fart, but I mean, I, I just feel that with technology as it is now, whether it's a podcast like Faking Notes podcast or whether it's tone base and they're unbelievably comprehensive and constantly growing, actually, a uh, library of resources, all the wonderful innovations and all, all these wonderful things that were created during COVID um, that are living on and then spawning other things. I think that uh, the day and age of somebody going out there and just having studied with one teacher their whole life, 
like me is almost over. I think that there's so much great stuff out there. It, the, the only challenge is filtering through it and figuring out what works for you, what doesn't work for you, what you think works for you, but doesn't really work. You know, like all that kind of stuff has to happen in order for you to have a clear mind and start to focus and then go forward. But um, I think there's just so much great stuff out there. And I think, I mean, I like to think that people of this generation, of my generation uh, and older, are much more comfortable speaking to a camera, speaking on a podcast, not knowing exactly who the audience is or will be, you know, just uh, just speaking about different things, philosophies of performance, stage fright, uh, ender all, you know, just anything. And uh, I think that uh, all of us have become much more tech savvy and able to kind of express ourselves in a way that's engaging and uh, interesting and and helpful, not dogmatic. Yes. Yes, because like the truth is always somewhere in the middle, right? right? There's always a, there's always nuance. You know, the yin and yang is it's like it just keeps coming back. There's there's no one hundred percent black or white. Yep. One thing that we talk about on the podcast or recently have been getting into uh, because it's becoming increasingly apparent to me that it is important to understand is money and how we as artists can leverage our art to also begin to position ourselves in a, in a place where we can be free uh, financially. And, and one of those things that I'm, I'm just very unclear about, and maybe like you as a, as a concert master um, can give some insight into is like, have you witnessed examples where a symphony orchestra has like materially affected the economy of a, a community? If so, like, what did that look like? Was it partnerships with local businesses? Was it, you know, initiative? Like, how does how does the art we create translate to benefiting the society in which we we reside? Well, I think, Drew, that um, the arts in Philadelphia is a great example of what I've seen with my own eyes uh, in terms of art having an a profound impact on our community uh, in terms of our local economy. And local is kind of a loose term because, mm -hmm. I mean, Philadelphia is, uh, you know, largest, largest city in the state of Pennsylvania in our commonwealth, as we call it. Um, but, you know, I heard just a few years ago that um, the arts in Philadelphia eclipse all sports combined so we're talking about art museum, different community theaters, the Philadelphia Orchestra, uh, Opera Philadelphia, you know, Ballet Philadelphia, you know, all these, all these entities combined, which create the arts in Philadelphia. Eclipse, the 76ers, the Phillies, you know, Eagles, Flyers, wow. you know, if you combined all, why? Um, I think that it's not so generational. I don't think it's just octogenarians kind of barely making it out to the concert hall. I see lots of young people. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, um, I think it truly is something that speaks to people's hearts and, um, and they don't have to pay us $49 million, you know, over a two year contract. It's just mm -hmm. different. It's just different. They're not paying a great quarterback or, you know, all, it's not, it's not the same. Uh, we're all in it together in the arts. So that's at least for me where I have seen 
direct impact on our community. I didn't know that. That's wild. That's huge. TIL. <laughs> I'm curious, as uh, you're, I know you had mentioned your interest in sports and like Drew and I read Outliers, like we, we both are very interested in sports and one, of course, enjoyment, uh, two, a lot of pain for the teams we've chosen to follow. Uh, and then three, yeah, it's learning. It's good to be uh, a fan of a, of a consistently losing team, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that builds character. But also the, of course, like the the inside game, the inner mind, the inner game of tennis, outliers, Kobe, LeBron. We've, we've talked about everyone, Tiger Woods. I'm curious when you're going out and doing all of these other sports in addition to your playing, I know there's been talk of like an interest in hunting of, of golf, of, of fishing, these types of activities. What specifically draws you to them? Do you like to approach them with that idea of mastery, like that same intensity you kind of bring to music? Or is this the getaway? I'm out in nature. It's okay to not become the best hunter or the best fisher. Like, How do you balance these uh, hobbies or other activities? Well, I, and I must say, Trevor, that I'm enjoying all my hobbies and avocations immensely now. Whereas just a few years ago, I remember I didn't know what was going on with my own brain, but I was getting a ride home with one of my colleagues. And I was like, I was so like angry at myself and tortured. And I was like, why do I have to win or try to win my fantasy football championship every year? Why do I have to get a 15-point buck every year? Why do I have to shoot under 75 in golf when I can't even break 90 most of the time? Why why do I have – and then I read this great book that Jane, my wife, gave me on uh, the Enneagram. Now, the Enneagram is an old kind of – it's basically you come up with about nine different personality types – And like one could be the conflict avoider. One could be the perfectionist. One could be the performer. That's me. Like I'm I'm always performing. Yeah. Like sometimes my wife is like, you don't have to be funny all the time. You don't have to be interesting all the time. I've heard that too. (laughs) So, um, and I finally started focusing in on what my strengths are, how I'm wired, my personality, Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A. Enneagram. Uh, you can go on Google and just enter Enneagram and you can take like a five minute like, and it'll give you kind of a general idea. But really, there are some kind of Enneagram books that are just fascinating and really focus in. And I finally came to realize that that was how I was wired by my parents. Hmm. Because when I started you know, violin at the age of three. I mean, like they were indoctrinating me. You are going to be one of the world's greatest. And like, it was never good enough. So I felt like I have to be great at violin, not good, great, like world-class. And uh, unfortunately that bleeds into everything else. So I have to be the best at everything else that I'm doing. And once I finally realized that, it freed me because I was like, wait a minute. I'm a lousy golfer and that's okay. You know, like there are going to be entire seasons where I don't even get a deer, let alone a 17 point buck. And there are going to be times when I don't go out and don't catch a fish or 
don't get to pool for the biggest fish. You know, like just all this crazy stuff. Um, so yeah, so that's been a big journey for me. Mm. And uh, I'd like to think I feel a little bit like it's kind of influenced my kids a little bit too because they're they're being wiser and not as like, oh, I got to get 4.0 and all that stuff, which it may, makes me so sad. I really appreciate you saying that because I resonate with that so deeply. I'm a video gamer. So when I was at Mercer, I was majoring in viola and majoring in league of legends yeah okay i was like either going to be a professional violist or a professional solo mid player and so like it, it it used to grind my gears by the fact that like i couldn't be the best at everything i tried and so like i really i took a lot from what you said about like understanding that there is you don't have to be the best at everything I think for me personally, it comes from my grandfather. My grandfather's name uh, was uh, Lonnie King Jr. And he was a civil rights leader in Atlanta. He marched with Martin Luther King. He was the president of the the Atlanta branch of the NAACP. He had acid thrown in his face, fire hoses shot on him. Uh, dogs sicked on him, but he still led, you know, civil civic disobedience. And so living up to like that memory, he, he used to talk to me. He took me to a museum when I was eight in Virginia. And it was a wax museum that like detailed black codes, uh, Jim Crow, uh, the lynchings, the, 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 the horrors of slavery. And he told me after we went through that, uh, and I was eight, he was like, you have to be the best because this is what they think of you. And so that is how I became like, I have to be the best at everything. You know, there's th- anything less they, they will want to take my life. So it, it, it was really interesting to hear the parallels. Uh, and that's kind of how I developed. So hearing you say like, you don't have to be the best, uh, really that struck a chord within me. And I, I thank you for sharing that. You bet Drew, but then, but then let's not forget that then I feel also, on the other hand, that there are a few moments in life when you have to totally sacrificially go for it. Mm-hmm. Like just, you just gain 30 pounds because you haven't gotten off your practice bench for <laughs> four months. Yeah. You know, like you're just completely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You've totally sacrificed whatever your life is as it exists and put the pedal to the metal for whatever a time that is. And it doesn't have to be like 10 years or 20. It can just be for a few times in your life where you absolutely go for it. Now, how do we know when it's that time? I don't know. You just have to, you know, pass or be surrounded by people that you trust and love, that trust and love you. And then also just your intuition. Sometimes you just have to trust your gut. This has been such a beautiful conversation. And at the at the very end, where we started doing these kind of like lightning rounds, and we'll get there. But before we jump in into that, I'm wondering what it's like when you're hitting these milestones. You've gone through you it's 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 Juilliard and Dorothy DeLay, and then it's Tchaikovsky, and then it's this darker period. 
and this transformation becoming the concert master, like playing at these different tiers. I'm wondering what it's like uh, to reach almost like new milestones, like what brings you joy? And one that at least comes to mind is what is it like to play amongst all of your peers with, with like an institution organization like mainly Mozart Festival? Where you're, all, it's a lot of concert masters. That's a pretty rare occasion to get around and make music amongst your peers. What is your experience like with the mainly Mozart festival? Well, I find that I've been twice now, and I find the atmosphere among all the colleagues there is so warm and not competitive, and not there's no comparison or anything like that. So I wish it always felt like that. Actually, that's. Um, it's just so much fun and it's a reunion every time you, I see people that are in orchestras all over the country that are friends, new friends that I made at mainly Mozart, uh, friends from back at Juilliard days, decades ago. Um, but you know, uh, doing anything in front of your colleagues, that's the most pressure filled. And so when I met mainly Mozart and even though there are like 12 concert masters sitting right near me you know, we're going to, we're going to go get a drink after the concert and hang out. And it's just so much fun. And it's like that with my colleagues too, but, uh, I don't know. There's something about, you know, when somebody says, and I'm sure everybody feels it on some level one or another, when you're playing anything in front of the Philadelphia orchestra, that's when it's so it's frightening. You know, you, you just feel the history that goes back over a hundred years and all the soloists and, you know, mm. just like last week, Gil Shaham played with us. And then next week it's going to be Augustine Hadley. It just goes on and on. And so it's really hard not to feel like everybody's comparing, but I think everybody just wants you to represent the orchestra well. And so wishes only the best for you, but uh, mainly Mozart. I just, I just, I mean, who doesn't want to come to Southern California any yeah. time of the year and be with great friends. And, uh, you know, it's just a fantastic, fantastic festival. We just had, uh, Michael Francis on, um, on a previous episode and a dear, uh, dear friend, somebody I really love and admire and what a golfer that guy is. He's an <laughs> incredible golfer. He's breaking 72. He's, he's oh my gosh. He's, he's really, really good. We went when the first time we went out, we went out somewhere in like uh, La Jolla or something. And I thought, yeah, he's going to be typical, you know, musician who plays mm -hmm. golf a couple of times a year. If that, mm -hmm. I mean, he was like hitting these long shots. He's a big guy and he just beautiful golfer and just what a great guy. And uh, he's just the perfect person to be leading this group of out of outsized egos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he he doesn't seem to have one. He seems to be like a forever student and a steward of like this art form. And it's, it's really inspiring yeah. to see. You know what, Drew? I have to say also, um, I love his conducting, his music making, his organic, nothing pretentious about it, nothing artificial. And the way he speaks to the audience before each piece, talking about the audience or whatever, whoever it is, whatever the subject, the best I've ever seen, mm -hmm. ever. And I've seen conductors, you know, the greatest in the world, my music directors, incredible speaker to the audience. But Michael, in my opinion, just has a magical way of putting words together, telling stories. I mean, he's like the greatest um, 
storyteller I've ever met. He's incredible. Mm. It was very apparent on the episode. Uh, I hope you <laughs> hope you listen to it when we drop it. But yeah. um, I'm so thankful that we got to connect with you, and we'll be continuing to connect with some more of your colleagues from mainly Mozart. Um, and I wanted to, you know, tie a bow on what we've been doing here today. Uh, let's hit the faking five. You, you you feeling up to it? Lightning round. Okay, let's see. Okay, and 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 your reward is, is uh, at the end of this, uh, you'll be able to like we'll roll out the purple and gold carpet for anything you want to shine a light to, anything you want to shout out. Um, so uh, here we go. All right. So, what is a problem in the world that needs to be fixed but no one is talking about? Well, I'm going to skip all the usual ones because, you know, it's. I mean, I read the New York Times every day, and you know, mm-hmm. it's all out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that the problem of our environment, which we also talk about, but something that I, this is ridiculous, but I really believe it is that we should be eating more plant-based and there's so much methane being created from farting cows. Mm -hmm. Really? I mean, it's like. 80%, 80%, no, more than 50% of the world's methane is created, global methane is created from cows. So, and that's because there's this incredible insatiable appetite for beef. And I, I just feel like, gosh, just within one square mile of my house here, there's like 7,000 pounds of fresh venison, which would be just fine as a substitute. And mm-hmm. uh, I just, I'm just really big for the environment and worry for my future generations. Talking to the right people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Question two, if the concept of money didn't exist, how would you spend your time? Oh, that's easy. I would be outdoors all the time. Um, I would be playing golf. I would be hunting. I'd be fishing. I'd be foraging for, well, in the summer times, I go to the shore near in New Jersey here and I go clamming. I would be in the forest gathering mushrooms and, and, and then having wonderful meals with people. That's why I hunt. It's not to kill anything. Mm-hmm. It's because I love that moment when we go up and open a wonderful bottle of red wine mm-hmm. and uh, enjoy the fruits of the bounty. You know, like this wonderful animal gave its life and we're going to treat it with respect and cook it beautifully. And that's that's what I like about hunting and fishing and uh, or grill up a bunch of clams that I gathered at the seashore, you know, just outdoors always for me. And part of that might be um, the fact that I spent so much time indoors as a kid playing the damn violin. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if there was ever any doubt that you were a Southerner, I think you've put that to rest. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Take take care of that. (laughs) What is the best advice that you've received and actually followed? Um, I think it's from my brother-in-law, Peter. Um, when I first joined the orchestra almost 25 years ago, the orchestra, Philadelphia Orchestra is quite self-governing in some ways. We have uh, many committees and stuff and really some important committees like artistic advisory, members committee, you know, all these committees, uh, education committee, tour committee. Um, but I was so insecure when I first joined the Philadelphia Orchestra. I'm in my 30s and I just felt so like out of my element and I just wanted to please everybody. So I ran and I got onto a couple of these committees. And I remember saying to my brother-in-law, I was like, Pete, man, I hate this committee work. I hate 
being in a committee meeting, all these meetings, and I hate when people complain to me on something and say, well, can you bring it up in the next meeting? You're like, I hate all that <laughs> stuff. And he looked at me, he was like, Dave, then don't do that. Don't do any more committees. Do what you do best and you like doing and don't do the other stuff. And sure enough, I stopped doing committee work. And there are people that love doing committee work in my orchestra who are so good at it, so wise and calm and I'll let them do it. And then they look at me and they're like, how do you fundraise? I'm like, are you kidding? I love fundraising. I'm good at it. I can go play 18 holes of golf and I'll ask somebody for a million dollars. You know, like stuff like that happens all the time. So it would be to try to discover early what your what your strengths are and do those things. And the other stuff that's driven by insecurity, pride, don't do that stuff. Mm. I, I hear you on the committees because everyone... Uh, when when they're like trying to go study with someone or they're thinking about college and they're like, wow, this this teacher's the head of this department and you know, it's the prestige and play. But what they don't realize is that, oh, they're probably the most junior and all the other teachers suckered them into sitting in all the meetings. So Exactly. <laughs> like, like, like that's so true. Yeah. It's like they, they're the they drove the short straw. Like that's why they got this job. <laughs> Question number four, what is your biggest failure? And how did you stage your comeback? I guess um, my biggest failure is, well, I won't air all that kind of dirty marriage laundry, but meaning I was not a very good husband early on, uh, but I will go with the job. Um, when I first joined the Philadelphia Orchestra, I had never been concertmaster of a big orchestra in my life. You know, I'd been principal second of the school orchestra at Juilliard when I was at college, you know, stuff like that. I'd been freelance concertmaster festivals and stuff, but never, I mean, you don't just like go right to a big five orchestra, but I did. <laughs> and I just came in guns a blazing. I was like, all right, everybody out of my way. There's a new sheriff in town. It's time to, time to make some institute some. Yeah, exactly. I was like, it's time to institute some changes around here. You know, yeah. I'm going to make my mark and put my imprint on this organization. And I have to say, that was such a huge mistake. I hurt people. I hurt people's feelings. I hurt myself. And it took me a long time, many years, to finally come out of that and realize that concertmaster does not mean the god of the orchestra. Concertmaster means you lead the first violin section on stage, and then when you walk off stage, you are not still the concertmaster slash profound leader of the Philadelphia Orchestra. <laughs> you just, you know, like I just, um, it, it took a lot of pain, but finally to realize that uh, humility is always the best way to do it and to go that way. I love that. And, and, and for the final question here, if you could go back in time and tell your 10 year elf, 10, well, 10 year old self something, what would it be? That more important than money would, because I am very money driven, which mm -hmm. I'm not proud to say, but it's just the it's way okay. I'm wired. Me too. <laughs> but hey. uh, my, yeah, my my uh, thing would be time is much more valuable than money. So instead of chasing money, <laughs> chase, 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 year after year, decade after decade, 
time is what you really can't get back. It's just like vapor. It just goes so quickly away. It's like powder. It just goes with the goes with the breeze. Um, it's gone so quickly, and so is money. But uh, in chasing money, you sacrifice so many great things. Time that time can buy you. Time with your family. Time with your friends. Time, just me time, you know, just whatever that might be. But time is the most valuable thing in life, in my opinion. Thank you for your profound sagacity during this conversation. Like, I I feel forever changed. I want to be your best friend <laughs> after this conversation. True. And, uh, not happening. Yeah. <laughs> not happening. No, I get it. I get it. Man. Not enough time or well, money. We are friends, though, from yeah. now on. Maybe not best friends. But... <laughs> so I wanted to roll out the, we want to roll out the purple and gold carpet for you. Like, what is something that you would like to, uh, like our audience to deploy our audience to like pay attention to? Like, what's something you want to shine a light on? Well, I mean, it sounds so boring, but I really do feel that. Uh, listening to a concert of the Philadelphia Orchestra is pretty profound. And uh, this orchestra tours a lot. We go all over the world. We were going to Europe this summer for almost three weeks. We we just did a U.S. tour. You know, just we're constantly on the road. We're Carnegie. We were played at Carnegie Hall eight times this year. If you have a chance, come see the Philadelphia Orchestra. And it is something so like luxurious to hear that incredible sound when I'm rotated off of a piece. Sometimes I'll go out into the hall and it's just thrilling. The sound is like just bathed in butter. Uh, and so like the sound is like so unctuous and high cholesterol, which is good, you know, yeah. it's like, it That's just feels way. Yeah. That's yeah. The Southern so, way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Butter, butter. Extra butter and everything. Butter. <laughs> so that's it. Just, you know, when you have a chance, Come and hear the Philadelphia Orchestra and, you know, it would be, I, I know you'll love it as I do every time. Well, we're going to go ahead and do that. Thank you so much, uh, David Kim. You are a wonderful human being and we, we thank you for being here. What a privilege. Thanks, Drew, Trevor, and Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. Till next time. Till next time.